Hello, and welcome to Art Matters at Home, a new arts and culture podcast from Philips. I'm your host, Arnold Lehman. After a half century in the art world, mostly as a museum director in Baltimore and Brooklyn, and five years at Philips as senior advisor, which means someone who is old, knows a lot of people, and isn't shy about voicing opinions, hosting an interview series like this seems like a perfect fit for me. So for each episode, like today's, I'll be at my desk having a socially distanced, at home conversation with friends from around the world, artists, dealers, museum directors and curators, collectors and critics, to learn from them how and what they are doing and what is on their minds today and for tomorrow. So let's get started with our conversation with my friend, artist, Judy Chicago. I want to ask you the question which you've only been asked 42,000 times. Judy Chicago, why Chicago? Well, you know, it's so interesting to me that nobody ever asked Robert Indiana about his name. The one answer I ever heard was that he wanted to become anonymous, but his original name was Robert Clark. (laughs) Anyway, okay, so I arrived in Los Angeles to go to college at UCLA with nothing but my talent and my Chicago accent because I came from a very modest background. And from almost the beginning when I started showing at Rolf Nelson Gallery, he had suggested I change my name. He used to call me Judy Chicago. And at that time in LA, a lot of the artists had underground names, like Ed Rache with Eddie Russia, Larry Bell with Ben Lux. And we all listed our names in our anonymous, our like pseudonyms in the phone book with the idea of like, if you really knew us, then you'd know how to find us. But I resisted Rolf's like, request that I change my name. I had a proto-feminist consciousness even then, and I listed myself, I mean, I called myself by my maiden name, which is Judy Cohen. But then I noticed that there were a lot of Cohens showing in Los Angeles. And so I, by then I had married my first husband, Jerry Garowitz, so I used his name, so I was Judy Garowitz, and that was kind of how I started my professional career in Los Angeles, but then two years after we got married, he died in a car accident, and I was faced with this predicament of being, like, called, like, people would come up to me and say, oh, I know your parents, but they weren't my parents, they were Jerry's parents. Right. Because my father was still in Chicago and my father was dead. And so I felt like I had no name. So at the end of the 1960s, when I got fed up with the macho LA art scene and want, what, wanted to change, radically change my direction, I had already accepted a teaching job in Fresno where I intended to set up the first feminist art program and also create figure out how to create a feminist art practice. I wanted to symbolize this change of direction. So I legally changed my name to Judy Chicago. Well, you know, I'll tell you, 
you told me that a long time ago, and I remembered most of it, but I think other people are always fascinated when there are people named Judy Chicago. I mean, I can see when people might have called you in the 1960s, they might have yelled out, hey, Chicago. Right. So I've always, you know, I've known you by no other name but that. And um, I've always loved it and you. And so now that everybody knows. Well, I just want to tell you the stupidest thing anybody ever wrote about me. Somebody wrote that I changed my name to Judy Chicago so my initials would be JC. (laughs) (laughs) But your initials were JC. Right. (laughs) Unless you spelled Cohen with a K. Never, never let facts interfere with fantasy, which is what we're watching all over now, right? Right. And with what you've been up against for more years than I can remember. I mean, that is not, um, all of this is not new to you. I think just the overwhelming tsunami of, you know, Less than the truth is what we're going through right now. So uh, that in itself probably is, you know, almost beyond anyone but you. You know, actually, Arnold, I had from the time I was very young an experience of the misrepresentation of truth because, you know, I grew up in the McCarthy years and my father was a Marxist. And when I was going to school, at grammar school, there were these weekly readers that had these cartoons, and they depicted Marxist and left-wing people as just horrible monsters who were like bayonetting, beautiful, blue-eyed, white Americans. And, you know, I was faced especially after my father died when I was 13 and I was being besieged by all of this popular media depicting left-wing people and Marxists as monsters, I was faced with a choice, which was, did I want to believe my own experience of my father, who was a wonderful man, and only wanted to make a contribution to the world to change the world and taught me that that was my obligation or was I going to believe these falsehoods and at 13 I had to make a choice and I chose to believe my own truth and in a way it prepared me for not only all the misunderstanding that has plagued my career and what stupid things people have written about me but also for this time we're in now where, you know, truth has, what does it become, an alternative, uh, oh, yeah, alternative facts. <laughs> yeah. So, but, you know, I just hope, I mean, McCarthyism ravaged this country for a decade, and somehow we were able to come out of that and write ourselves. And I'm just hoping that that will happen again, as I was discussing today on the phone with Hans Ulrich, uh, Obris, one of my partners in this new project we just launched, one has to choose hope, which, of course, is also a Jewish mandate, as you know. Well, all I have to say is that if one day in the next few months or so, 
Joe Biden has a sore throat and can't go on stage to debate Trump, who refuses, of course, to debate him, um, I'd like him to call on you. Oh, yeah, that'll be the day. <laughs> well, that might be the day, but I would like to see you'd handle that. I know you would. Well, you know, Arnold, that's really interesting because, you know, when the dinner party was in Chicago in 1981, uh, I went on a show called the Herb Custament Show. He was a kind of Chicago legend. He had this radio show and then a TV show. And who was on the show but Roy Cohn? No. Yes. He, of course, was the lawyer at, for and the engineer of McCarthyism. And he has also been a mentor to Trump. So I go on the show and there's Roy Cohn. And of course, my father was and my family was a victim of McCarthyism. I mean, the FBI visited our house when I was six years old. And you know, they had no idea of my background, none. You know, I was just a Chicago girl who had this show and blah, blah, blah. Well, Roy Cohn and I got into a screaming fight on the television show. Irv Cupsonet's wife was standing in the wing. She's going, give it to him, girl! Give it to him, girl! <laughs> Anyways, you know, for days when I went on the street in Chicago, you know, people would come up to me because everybody watched that show. And, of course, it was incredibly moving for me because I watched it with my family. And it was like, they felt like I had, you know, really stood up for my father. So I've had experience with these maniacs before. Did you, is there a tape surviving from that show? Yeah, there is, actually. And do you have it? Well, Donald, of course, you know, he saves all that stuff in archives. But yeah, he has it. My husband, Donald, who you know, sorry. The people who don't know who my husband of almost 35 years is, the wonderful photographer, Donald Woodman, wonderful husband. Okay, so tell me, tell us about your show, about well, how did you start doing the show about why art matters? Well, I started actually a number of years ago when, uh, we actually were able to do this person to person. Everyone, you know, inches apart, not even six feet apart. And I would start inviting friends um, to talk about different subjects. Um, everything from something that fascinated me. I'd see a contemporary drawing show. So I'd get a group of people together to talk about drawing or drawing meant. Um, I would, um, I did a big panel discussion about, um, LGBTQ art, uh, and it was one of the best I ever did because after I spoke for about three minutes, they took the panel away from me. Absolutely. And it was a free for all. And every minute of it was wonderful. Everybody in the, they couldn't, people in the audience just didn't want it to end. And um, I figured, you know, uh, people at the Art Institute and at Columbia, and they're all talking about intense subjects. And I wanted to talk about subjects that people, you know, people, everyday people were concerned about, but that had art 
that art mattered to them in ways that were, um, you know, on a on an individual local um, basis. So I did that. I did a whole bunch of these panel discussions. They were all so much fun. But when um, the virus came and we were no longer able to do anything in person, uh, Phillips asked me, well, how is I going to replace Art Matters? Because it's come to matter. And I said, well, I'm going to do um, a group of um, individual conversations, not interviews. I don't want to do any interviews. I want to do conversations with people that I like, that I admire, that I've been friends with for years. So there's, it, there's no cold element of it. I mean, we could start and stop a conversation, whether we started today and picked it up four months from now, or a conversation that you and I had 10 years ago, we could continue that conversation. Um, and that's what I wanted to do. And I'm gonna do it all summer long until Labor Day. Well, you know, it's so interesting because your show, our conversation is going to play right after this uh, series of, well, it's not actually a series. It's like a, a group of essays are going to be published, four essays in the New York Times called Why Does Art Matter? And I, they had asked me to write about that, and I wrote about it before the pandemic. And then when the virus started and the whole, our whole world turned upside down, I asked them if I could rewrite it because I wanted to address how this, like, how, like, how can art matter at a time like this? Right. And of course, um, I, I myself think that art matters even more now which is why I've been working since last September with Hans Ulrich Obrist and the Serpentine and the wonderful street artist Swoon, you know, who's inspired an entire generation of young female street artists. I love her. I love her. I love her too. And, and Jane Fonda and her organization, Fire Drill Fridays and the National Museum of Women in the Arts, and Greenpeace. And in a way, it started, this whole thing started in September when my last project was at NEMWA in Washington at the National Museum of Women in the Arts. It was called The End, a Meditation on uh, Death and Extinction. And uh, Jane Fonda had just, who I know, who we know, had just come to Washington for four months to start her Fire Drill Fridays. And Hans Ulrich came to Washington after I had already left, but he met with Jane uh, to see the end because he's long been interested in issues of extinction. And in fact, he had done this project in Europe called It's Urgent, where he had artists do billboards, and I had done one for that based on one of the extinction images. So our conversation started then about, it started with the idea of bringing its urgence to America, but it, stayed, it slowly got bigger, and 
it segued into the, especially once people couldn't go out in the street like they had been able to do, and we were all at home. It started with the idea of, okay, what could we do? It's like what you said about your program. What can you do within the constraints of our present situation? And we launched this global project on the 20th of April, less than two weeks ago, which has had an incredible effect already. Swoon did this workshop, the Zoom workshop, with hundreds of people. We've gotten thousands of posts in images from artists all over the world. I'm posting them on my Instagram. And in June, I'm going to do a, I'm going to curate an exhibition with my dealers in Santa Fe, Turner Carroll. It's called Solstice. It's going to open on the Solstice. It'll be, which is June 20th. It'll be like online and on site. It'll be part of Create Art for Earth. And we're going to ask artists to think about the solstice, which of course has to do with the sun. And God knows we need some light. And I feel like you do, Arnold, that art can matter, especially in a time like this. I believe that artists can help us see a different world, which of course is the image in back of me, which is based on one of my paintings from Resolution called It's Always Darkest Before the Dawn. And actually I did it in response to, you'll, you'll appreciate this, people in, like in the 90s were saying, oh, I'm just like hopelessly naive and idealistic. And I'm like, right, the image on the left, all in Grisai painting, is how I see the world, okay? Like bombs, pollution, rape, pillage, the destruction of the forest, the destruction of the ocean. And I choose... It's like Judy Chicago marries Hieronymus Bosch. Oh, that's interesting. I, I like that, Arnold, very much, actually. I mean, Donald and I went to Madrid, to the Prado, to see the Garden of Earthly Delights. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And, you know, it tells us something about what art can do and mean. You know, when, I mean, look how far we went. We traveled to actually see that painting because seeing it in reproduction is not the same as seeing real right? Okay, so we're hoping that we stimulate a global outpouring of images all over the world that can help lead us out of the darkness into a place of equity and justice. Judy, I think what we need. I mean, we're not going to get out because you know, as I mentioned in my New York Times article, I always knew that we were headed for some incredible disaster because our refusal to confront climate change, our treatment of other creatures. I just hoped that it wouldn't happen until after Tom and I were dead. To tell you the truth. I didn't expect it to happen quite so soon, but it was inevitable based, based on our disregard for the planet, for the earth, for the environment, and for other creatures. No, you are, you are so right. And 
I, I think this project is unbelievable because it says not only are you asking people to make works of art by implication, you're saying that people can become artists. They can, they can look at the world around them. They can tell us things about the world that they see that we may not see. You know, for years, I've always said that artists should be absolutely protected species because they tell us things about the world that nobody else can see. And that's why what you're doing is so important and what your partners in this with Swoon, who I also adore and gave a show to Swoon, God knows, 15, 16 years ago when she was about 12 years old. Um, anyway, um, so it's what you're doing is terrific, Judy. I really applaud it. Thank you. Thank you, Ronald. But I have to say that one of the things that I hope this complete collapse of the art world as we know it, even worse than the 2008 recession, is going to do is I hope it is going to sweep away all the meaningless art that has been cluttering up a lot of space. Because art can lead the way, but only if artists, one, stop talking in tongues. You know, there have been generations of artists now who've been educated in these university art project uh, schools, programs, where basically that's what they learn. I mean, I learned it too when I was in university, but not at the level now. It, which is, to, you know, to focus on the conceptual, the formal, the ironic, the distance, like God forbid you should evidence empathy, much less real content that real people can relate to. I mean, you know, you know I took quite a beating in the art world, and for a long time I attributed everything to my gender, but I, now that I'm old, I know that's really not the whole story. It, I, I believe a lot of it has to do with the fact that I made my work deliberately accessible to broad audiences. I wanted to communicate. I didn't want to talk in tongues. I had to unlearn how to do that. That's one of the reasons I went to Fresno. And, of course, ever since I undertook my self-guided study tour and discovered the unknown history of women, I have been passionate about trying to use my visual skills to help envision a world of equity and justice. And of course, in the dinner party, it was focused on women. But over the years, I have steadily expanded my views until they have come to encompass other creatures and the earth. Because unless we make a world of equity and justice for everyone, we're doomed. Our species is doomed. The earth will simply slough us off. And we'll deserve it because we behave egregiously. It's so painful. 
human beings have such an incredible potential for good, for compassion, for generosity. It's the same thing with art. Art is a generous impulse. Art and money sit next to each other very uneasily because art is from the heart. And to translate it into market values so distorts it. And so I hope that whole system collapses and we come out of this with artists understanding what impact their work can have beyond a price tag. Judy, I am so delighted that you said yes when I asked you to be part of this little group of friends um, because you've always told it the way it is from day one and you keep you keep telling it and I think that is really critical um, and I, I oh I have to tell you you know you keep mentioning speaking in tongues yeah. I'm one of the few people in the entire world who knows what the word is for speaking in tongues. Really? What is it? Glossolalia. Glossolalia is speaking in tongues. How do you know that, Arnold? I'll tell you why. Because years ago, when I used to give talks to different audiences and museum audiences, one of the things I would say about the art world and about museums that were thought of themselves as big vaults and were not very happy about people coming in, that all these people, I said, were practicing glossolalia because speaking in tongues to me sounded kind of religious in a way. And I wanted to get away from religion so I found out what the word was, and I've never forgotten. How many words are there like glossolalia? So, uh, Actually, I don't know. Let me ask you something. Okay, so, you know, we became very close through your support of Elizabeth Sackler's desire to permanently house the dinner party at the Brooklyn Museum when you were the director. Okay, so now, Arnold, what would you like to see in terms of a, the direction of museums? Well, you, <laughs> you ask tough questions, Ms. Chicago. Um, uh, that's very difficult. That's difficult for me to say because I believe that a museum, like uh, any other place, has lots of different parts and functions. Um, its course should be set by the current director. But what I believe that goes beyond that is that Brooklyn has been a place which is committed to the issues that you just talked about. It's committed to the issue of equity, committed to the issue of inclusion, committed to the issue of diversity, committed to gender issues, where all these things, very, very few of, in the past years, my colleagues 
spoke about. Um, and, and I wasn't asking you specifically the Brooklyn Museum because we we know we both know that Ann Pasternak has definitely been, you know, like filling your shoes in the sense of broadening that mission. I was asking you about what you would like to see in terms of the museum system. Ah, well, there you go. But my answer is no different. My answer is for museums across this country and across the world to, to really adopt so many things that are, have been contrary to their way of doing business over these many years, to be more open, to be accepting, to be activist in terms of what's right. And to make sure that their communities are all provided with the same kind of service that we used to provide to, at first, an all-male white community. And then, you know, we finally got it integrated so that it was a all-white male and female community. And further, then we started to really go towards the core issues that everyone deserves art. Everyone deserves a museum. A museum is one of the most, with libraries, are among the most democratic places in the world. And we should put that issue and concept of democracy into effect whenever we can make it happen. I mean, I agree with that 100%. You know, one of the things about uh, my career and like I'm uh, putting together, I have a contract with Thames and Hudson. I'm putting together my two autobiographies through the flower and beyond the flower into one edited and revised book. That's and, great. That's and then great. I'm going to up, bring it up to date. But one of the things I, I was talking, I talked quite a lot about in the book is one of the reasons my work and the work of so many women artists, artists of color, marginalized artists, remains unknown, unseen, uncared for is because our art institutions do not yet reflect the changes in consciousness that have taken place around, particularly in the Western world. It, 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 so that what you're talking about is that instead of having this gesture of openness and generosity, too many museums have this gesture, like you were talking about, a vault, as opposed to adopting the idea that art and artists like me, this is how I've always seen my career, is being in service to higher goals, to telling the story of women's history, to ending the silence about birth in, in Western art, to opening the way to look at gender roles, not just women, what the construct of masculinity. When I started PowerPlay in the late 80s and went to the library and looked up gender, the only thing that came up were books on women, as if only women had gender. 
And then as I slowly expanded my views and my vision and my goals, uh, how can we create institutions that are diverse, that are welcoming, that are representative? I mean, I feel like that is the unfinished job that our generation, you, me, our generation, is leaving for the future. And that's why I feel so good about the possibility of doing a project, a global project, thanks in part with, for the reach of the Serpentine, you know, a global project that invites artists from all over to bring their views and to, as I said in my call, right now, hang them from their balconies, put them on their windows, post them on their doors, post them on social media, send them to us, and eventually, when this nightmare ends, we hopefully we will have an image bank that can lead us into a new place. Now, that's the role of art, don't you think? I agree, Judy. I really do. And I have to tell you what it made me think about a little bit. And I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to get sort of sad when I say this, but when I thought about this mosaic of works of art produced by everyone all over the world, I thought about the time when the AIDS quilts were laid all over the mall and that mosaic, which allowed people to see and appreciate, again, people who were often pushed aside and were not, you know, were not embraced. Um, so uh, both of them were reaching towards a greater world. And, you know, the thing about the AIDS club that has a terrible sort of um, echo now is that healthcare workers are being demonized. People who had the virus are being demonized. It's like, excuse me, what is this, the Middle Ages when we had the plague? I mean, it's, it's kind of terrifying because it's almost like we're confronting both sides of modernity, the worst and the best. And we're at a huge crossroads as human beings. Which path will we take? The worst or the best? And Judy, with that idea, I am going to thank you from the bottom of my heart for sharing all of this with me and with the thousands of people who will see this and appreciate it and for sharing over all these years, so much good that you've done. Thank you, Arnold. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I am, it's my great, great pleasure. Uh, our only problem, as I said to you when I did invite you, is we could probably talk for the next 14 hours. Except I'm tired, because now I'm old. Ah, <laughs> uh, don't talk about old, don't talk about old. Neat. We're both approaching middle age. 
Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. See you soon and see you soon. Take care. You too. That was my great friend, artist Judy Chicago. I hope you will join me for my next episode of Art Matters at Home when artist and graffiti legend Lee Quinones will be with us. 